you're new with us, we're uh, working our way through Luke's gospel, and today we come to this parable. A parable is a, a story with a punch, and this one packs quite a punch. Um, it's a very simple story to understand, but it's a story that um, really hits on some of the major issues of life, like the issues of authority, purpose, and destiny. Uh, and so let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it together. Father, thank you for another opportunity to study your word and pray what Paul prayed for the Colossians, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him in every way. I pray that you would do that today, that we would increase in the knowledge of God, that you would make us wise. You would make some in this room wise unto salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever taken a trip that uh, ended up taking much longer than you expected. Uh, you look to your spouse or a friend and you say, well, it's just a, a quick overnight trip and then I'll be home. And then you fly southwest. And uh, some of you experienced that recently. It, it took way longer than you ever anticipated. Once I was uh, in Ukraine and I was anticipating coming home after about six days, but there was a volcano in Iceland that grounded all the flights for days uh, just not something you think of before you head out, you know, like I'll be home in six days unless there's a volcano in Iceland. Um, and there my expectations uh, were crushed. A different scenario, but a similar point in 1914, the German Kaiser told departing troops before the war, you'll be home before the leaves have fallen from the trees. How wrong he was. Most of us like things quick, efficient, and easy. Don't we, we like Chick-fil-A style, that kind of service. This is the day of fast food, of high-speed internet, of Amazon delivering our stuff immediately, DoorDash bringing food to our, our front door immediately. We like instant success, instant satisfaction, instant progress, and instant relief. And if we don't get it, we love to complain about it. But the kingdom that Jesus speaks of in this parable doesn't come immediately. Jesus speaks of the long haul. You see, many in Jesus' day believed that the kingdom in all of its glory would happen when Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem. And so Jesus tells this parable right before he gets to Jerusalem to clarify what kind of kingdom he brings and what kind of people he expects us to be. By the time we reach this portion of, of Luke's gospel, Expectations of Messiah were sky high, and there were all sorts of ideas about what the Messiah would do. After all, Jesus has done the things that Messiah uh, was in the Old Testament was said to do. He, he heals the blind. He raises the dead. He cleanses lepers. We've seen those things. We've seen Jesus preach about the kingdom of God. In the very next passage we look at next week, that G Jesus is hailed as the king, and yet there was still a lot of clarifying that needed to take place that though the, the, the king was present, as we looked at in Luke 17, there is an already but not yet kingdom, that there is an interval of time in between the first and second coming of Jesus, and that's what this parable is about. What is it that we do in between these times? And Jesus tells us quite plainly we are to be about the king's business. You see, if you're new with us in, in Luke's gospel, we are at the kind of the last portion now 
as Luke 9.51 says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and now we've come to this parable, and we see that he is near Jerusalem, and then next week he is there. Everything has been building toward that moment when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mentioned 32 times in the Gospel of Luke. And the question was, what will Jesus do when he makes it to Jerusalem? Will he conquer Rome? Will he overthrow all of our enemies? Will he usher in this messianic kingdom? And Jesus tells us a parable to the people so that they could get their, their perceptions corrected. Before the crown would be a cross. Before the glory would be suffering. And he tells that there is something for us to do until he does come again in all of his glory and his power, and that is to be about his work, to be about his business. Now, this is a story that Jesus tells that would have been familiar to the hearers. It, it reads like something that would have read out of the news headlines of the day, meaning it, it was rather routine for a mid-level ruler uh, of an outlying precinct of Rome to have to travel to Rome in order to have kingship conferred on him. It was generally understood you would go to Rome to receive your little kingdom. And some of the people that were listening to this parable may have had a specific historical example in mind. About 30 years before the events that we read here, Herod the Great died, and he split up his empire among his sons, giving Judea and Samaria to his son Archelaus. But Herod's handoffs to his sons were subject to Roman approval. So Archelaus had to go to Rome to have Caesar approve his appointment and receive his kingdom. Before Archelaus left, however, there was a riot in the temple, and Archelaus had over 3,000 Jews slaughtered. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't like Herod the Great, and they didn't want to be ruled by his son either. They eventually sent a delegation of 50 men to Rome in order to appeal Caesar's decision, but they lost their appeal. Archelaus became king, and his palace was in Jericho where Jesus has just passed through. And there are a lot of uh, echoes of that event in this parable. A nobleman goes off to be appointed as king, but he's pursued by a group of people who oppose his reign. But when everything is over, he receives the appointment, he returns, and he calls for his opponents to be slaughtered in front of him. Now, obviously, Jesus is not like murderous Archelaus, but you get the point. If mild opposition or strong opposition to a mid-level king results in punishment, how much more will opposing the true king result in eternal devastation? So that part of the story is a warning. You don't want to oppose the real king. The other part of the story is very positive. Faithfulness to the king will be rewarded. Faithfulness to the king doesn't go unnoticed by the king. And so let's look at this parable in three simple parts. First of all, correction. Secondly, calling. And thirdly, consequences. First, correction. Jesus clarifies some wrong perceptions about his kingdom in the first two verses. Luke actually tells us in verse 11 why Jesus tells this parable. <laughs> this is now the third time Luke tells us why Jesus is telling a parable before he tells it. We appreciate that, Luke. And he says, he was telling this parable because he was near Jerusalem. Once again, expectations were sky high about what Jesus would do once he arrived. Many people supposed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so Jesus, knowing this, decides to tell a parable. And he says, a nobleman went off into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then return. 
So he's going to receive this kingdom. He's going to have the right to reign. You notice here that Jesus understands himself to be the king. Angels declare Jesus to be the king right from the jump. Luke has described Jesus as the king. And now Jesus sees himself as this nobleman who would become and is the king. And one of the purposes of Luke's gospel, we've noted that many times at the beginning of Luke, is that we may know the truth concerning Jesus. And here is a basic and fundamental truth. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the king to end all kings. And he is the king worthy of our life and our devotion. And we see in various places in Luke and uh, Acts, after resurrection and ascension, Jesus sits down at the Father's right hand. He is the reigning king right now. But there is this interim period right between his first coming and second coming. There's going to be a time, and we're living in that time, where Jesus is not physically present. We await the thrill of him uh, bringing in the completion of all things in the kingdom. Now, this is an important clarification because throughout the history of the church, there's been sort of a kingdom mania. There have been all kinds of speculation about the return of Christ and about this kingdom. And most people want to debate and discuss the issue of when all of these things will take place. But the issue you read about regularly through the Gospels is not when, but what do we do until then? That's the emphasis. I mean, even the disciples had a hard time shaking this. In Acts chapter 1, they look to Jesus and they say, Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. And then he says, this is your business. Go be my witnesses all around the world. Because it's a lot easier to speculate than to share the gospel. A lot easier to, to sit around uh, uh, debating these sorts of things rather than be about the, the, the mission of the church which is to bear witness to Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ returns. But eschatology, the study of last things, can make people fanatical. Sometimes it can make people distracted. And sometimes it makes people idle. But the return of Jesus should make us faithful. It should make us passionate. It should, it should wake us up to realize we've got important work to do until Jesus comes. And when he comes, we'll be glad we got to work for the king. And that fills our ordinary days with meaning, with significance. That this king has entered into the far country, that is, he's ascended to heaven, and this king will come again. And because of that, everything that we do in this life matters. Now, there's a similar parable in Matthew 25 around the same uh, chronological time uh, where uh, Matthew writes about the parable of the talents. And that's the one I've heard the most. That's the one I've dealt the most with. I've actually never preached this parable nor even heard a sermon from this parable but the parable of the talents is slightly different in that in that story Jesus gives each servant different talents and those talents represent abilities and gifts but you notice here each servant gets the same mina and so the parable of the talents is more of an emphasis on gifting and using your gifts and the emphasis here is on faithfulness in fact, you notice that's what's commended in verse 17. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful. That is to say now, this parable then is saying to us that we all have the same gospel. We all have the same great commission. We all have the same great commandment. And what Jesus is looking for until we see him is faithfulness. Be faithful until he returns. Okay, so that's the clarification. Secondly, the calling. Jesus speaks of that call to faithfulness in uh, verses 13 to 26. Before he leaves, he summons these servants 
He gives each of them a mina, which was about three months' wages, and he tells them to, to engage in business. That is, to take everything that they have and invest it for the king and for his kingdom. This, this mina stands for everything we have. We're stewards of, of the kingdom, right? That we are not our own, as Paul says. We are bought at a price. Where we live, where we work, our abilities, our education, our weekends, our health, our interaction with people, all of it given as a stewardship. Use what you've been given, right? And the parable ends at the, at the end, basically says use it or lose it, right? Take, take the guy who did nothing and give it away. And so he, he gets these three servants, or ten servants rather, gives each of them a mina. He's going to make his point just with three servants, but you see there that ten servants are given a mina. Tells them to trade with the money to make it grow, which is a symbolic way of saying take everything you have and invest it in the kingdom, this stands for all of our responsibilities that we have between uh, the first and second coming of Jesus and get to work. Now, Jesus notes a problem in verse 14 that not everyone likes the king. He says that some of the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want him to reign over us. Now, this parable is preparing us for the events of Jerusalem. What's going to happen is that people will hate him. They don't want Jesus to reign over them. And it's important for us to remember that just as they hated Jesus, they will hate his followers as well. Jesus says this in John 15, doesn't he, to his disciples, that if, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. That it's, we serve the king in a king-hating world. And we're forced with a decision, as Davis says, do we want the smile of Jesus and the frown of the world, or vice versa? And I'll take the smile of Jesus, won't you? And you notice what is it that brings pleasure to the king in verses 15 to 19? And it's faithfulness. <clears throat> he says, as he calls them to give an account, and we know that this will happen, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, other places where we give an account for our work. And he calls the first servant who had been given uh, his mina, and he comes back with great success. And he says, it's made 10 minas more. And notice his language here, Lord, your mina. He doesn't boast about what he's accomplished. What, what has happened is you've given me something, and what you've given me has great power. The mina that you gave me made the increase. And I like to think about this as the power of the gospel. It's amazing what the gospel will do. And it's the gospel we have received. Lord, your gospel has uh, it has made impact all around the world and continues to do so. And so you see that this has been a faithful servant. He's been about that gospel business. And what I love in this parable is that you see Jesus telling us that faithfulness thrills him. You see the response of the master? Well done, good servant. Is there anything better than that? Because you've been faithful in very little. You will have authority, he says, over ten cities. He takes pleasure in faithfulness. Just the way a parent who takes pleasure in a child, even when the child is doing something very, very small and very insignificant maybe. Like, oh, he says his ABCs now. We got to video this. And we got we to send videos of everything uh, of, of little Johnny. You take pleasure in your children. And Jesus Christ takes pleasure in his servants. 
when they're about his work. And this is encouraging because oftentimes faithfulness is not noticed by people. It's certainly not rewarded always by people, but faithfulness gets Jesus' attention. It pleases him. He's pleased by it. And so this, this servant is commended, and he's given a reward of 10 cities. Think about that proportion. One mina, three months' wages, to 10 cities. This is how generous our king is. The, the latter servant says that the king is harsh. The king is anything but harsh. He's abundantly gracious. He's given us the abilities in the first place, and then as we invest them in his work, he rewards us at a, at a, at a great differing you know, rate of return in reward. Well, that goes to the second servant then. He also has a good report. He says, Lord, uh, your mina has made five minas. And he basically says the same thing to him. You will be over five cities. Again, he is a generous king, a generous master. Now notice before we look at the third servant, each servant gets the same mina, but not each servant gets, not, each servant doesn't get the same reward. There is a different proportion based upon work, and I think that is borne out in other places in the, in the New Testament. As Ryle says, our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. Now, I don't think that means in heaven you'll be upset because the sin of envy will be rooted out of our hearts. <laughs> Praise be to God. We'll actually be able to rejoice in other people's work. But there is something here, I think, about the fact that Je what you do for Jesus really does matter, and it really is noticed, and it will be rewarded. Is that the only motivation for faithful service? No, but it is a motivation, right? Thirdly here, the, the final servant has the wrong attitude. You notice his language, how it shifts. Lord, here is your mina. Here is your mina, which I kept hidden away in a handkerchief. I didn't use what you gave me. I didn't invest what you gave me. Here's your mina. And here's why I didn't invest. Here's why I hid your, your, your gifts and your grace in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. Think about that. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now here's what I want you to see from this third servant. How you view Jesus determines how you live your life. If you view Jesus as a harsh master, then you end up like servant three. But if you view Jesus as worthy of glory, as benevolent, as generous, as gracious, then you consider it a privilege to serve him with everything that you have. How you view Jesus impacts everything. This, this servant basically looks to the king and says, you aren't worth serving. You aren't worth investment. But church, he is worthy. He is worthy. This king is headed to Jerusalem to die for us and rise from the dead. And he gives us gifts and abilities and resources. And he says, use them for my kingdom until I come and I will reward your faithful servant. That's not a harsh master. That's an amazing master. Consequently, the king rebukes this servant and he says, I will condemn you with your own words. You should have at least put it in the bank and let it make some interest. He doesn't really engage with everything about this servant. He, he basically, though, says that you are wicked, which I think is important because sometimes the, there is a discussion about whether or not this third servant is sort of a nominal Christian 
One that's in the category of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 15, where it says, some will be saved though by fire. Is this a servant that will barely make it in? He didn't really do a whole lot and didn't really have a lot of fruit, actually had no fruit, but you know, maybe he prayed a prayer or something like that when he was two. Um, you can tell by my sarcasm, I don't think that's the best view. I think, I think Jesus calling him wicked, the, the fact that he doesn't have any love for the king and the fact that there is no fruit bearing would not suggest that. Even though he's not numbered among those outright enemies at the beginning of the parable, there is still sort of an unbeliever that can be around God's people, that can be around the church, but don't live lives of fruitfulness and of faithfulness. And that is a very dangerous place to be. When you look at the parable of the talents, it's clear that the servant who did nothing is not a believer because he's said to be thrown where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, people protest with Jesus. They don't like Jesus' math here, <laughs> where Jesus, he says, hey, take that guy's mina, give it to the guy with 10. I wonder how you react to that. And the people are like, well, he's got 10. And Jesus is like, well, take, take the guy who's doing nothing and give it to the guy who is going about this work. And Jesus is showing us here that those who do not invest what they have will be taken away. But on the other hand, those who have been faithful with what they've been given, blessings will never end. They will continue to experience God's abundant grace. So the question is, friends, quite simple in this parable. What are we doing with what we've been given? And are we living out our days in view of the return of the king, in view of the fact that we will give an account to him? Third part, consequences. Jesus now rejects those previously mentioned enemies and tells us about their fate in verse 27, where he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. A meek and mild Jesus. This is not a verse you'll find on many quilts or coffee mugs. It's our new life verse. It's important, though, this was a common idea, as uh, Edwards' commentator says, Eastern kings coming to power often disposed of his enemies in this manner. I've already mentioned Archelaus doing that. So it's not something that was totally foreign to these original hearers. But I think there's, there's always purpose in Jesus' warnings, right? What is, what, why would he say things like there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who reject him, those who will perish? Why would Jesus speak of hell more than anyone else? Isn't it at least in part to wake people up? How do you shock someone out of indifference and callousness and apathy? Well, the Lord can use his warnings to wake us up. And Jesus warns us because he loves us. He warns us enough to tell us of what will happen if we reject his kingship. And the good news is you don't have to reject his kingship. In fact, we, we should read this, in case this sounds harsh to you, we should read it in view of the cross. The one who speaks these words is about to be slaughtered. He's about to be the lamb slain for the world. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to take the judgment that we deserved. He came to die in our place, so we don't have to fear judgment. We can anticipate his return with joy. And so it's important that we put it in that context, right? Now let me just offer up some final reflections now that we've looked at the parable. Three questions, three issues. The question of authority, of purpose, and destiny. 
First of all, authority. Who is in charge of your life? I think that's a question that arises out of this text, don't you? Who's in control? Now, we live in a day of individualism, and the answer to that is, I am. No one can tell me how to live. No one can tell me that I'm not the king. We often hear things like this, only accept what rings true to your inner self. Oprah and other celebrities speak of your truth instead of the truth. Wasn't that the issue in the garden where the serpent says, the question is really who's in charge? And the serpent says, you will not surely die. Or we hear things all the time like, just follow your heart, pal. And that's the last thing we need to do. Even Bill Murray recognizes that. He said, I follow my heart and it led me to the refrigerator. (laughs) I I need a new heart, man. (laughs) Like, we don't, we don't, it is not good for you to be your source of authority. We're not good kings. Jesus is a good king. And submitting to his authority is what's true, what is good, what will cause you to flourish, what gives your life meaning, what gives you eternal reward. No, submitting to Jesus Christ and his authority, his lordship, that's what the gospel of Luke's calling us to. There's no king like Jesus. No other king died for you. No other king rose from the dead. No other king is coming to to bring in a new creation. Now let's turn loose of all little superficial cheap authorities and say, Jesus Christ, you alone are king of my life. You are a good king. I'm your happy servant. Authority. Second purpose. I think this text asks this question, what are you living for? Is there purpose in this life? The old song, what are you living for? The, a two-room apartment on the second floor. Songs of different genres throughout the ages have looked at their everyday existence and wondered, what is all this for? Are the new atheists right? As Dawkins put it, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's one worldview you can adopt. But this parable shows us that we never lack purpose in our lives. We have a royal summons from the king. So if you need reason to get out of bed tomorrow, at least by 10 in the morning, know that Jesus has blessed us and he sends us out in the world to be about his business. Every day we are servants of Jesus Christ. We're about his work, his business, whatever we do for a living, whether we're in school or not in school. And here's the good news about this purpose. It doesn't change the older you get. The 80-year-old has the same purpose as the new Christian who's uh, in their early 20s. What we do for a living might change, but no, our calling to be faithful to Jesus until we see Jesus never ceases to be at the center of our lives. We can say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win scenario. So there's purpose here. We not only have the glorious future, but Jesus fills our lives right now with everyday meaning. I'm thankful for that. Thirdly, destiny. Where are you going? I know you're going to lunch in a moment, but before you go there, we look at this parable, and I think this question hits us. Are we headed toward cold nothingness? Are we just plant food when we die? No, here's the destiny of the whole world. Jesus Christ 
will return and reign forever in a new creation. And you can enjoy heaven with this king or you will sadly face his judgment. Various sources claim that we make about 35,000 decisions every day. But this is the one decision that impacts everything else. Will you embrace Jesus as your king? What will you do with Jesus Christ? Submit to his authority, live for his purposes, experience this new creation with this good king. There is no king like him. Praise be to God for his word this morning. I pray that he would write its truths on our hearts and that we would live with wisdom in light of what Jesus has taught us here. Father, we thank you for your word that we do indeed have purpose and meaning in this life, that Jesus Christ is a good king, the best king, the only king, and we want to live for his glory. We want to be about his business until we see him face to face. And we thank you that we have this glorious promise that we will. And so make us wise, we pray, to these ends. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen.